0: Lord Jesus, would you help me today to get this passage right? I feel that it is a important but challenging text, one that you've given for our food and our benefit. and We don't want to miss one nugget of truth here today. And yet we're also talking about a rather sensitive subject, the issue of legalism. And the reality is it's far easier for us to think of other legalists that we know rather than taking a close look at our own hearts. And we just really want to do a quick heart check and say, Christ... We ask you to apply the word to me. We're asking you to open our hearts that we would not live being afraid of shadows. Instead, cling to Christ. So, Lord, whatever in this message fits with what you intended in this text for us, Lord, let it stick. Give hope to people who are in hard family dynamics with what feels to be like very judgmental people. Lord, give healing to those who grew up in homes or churches where this was just all over the place, and this text could really help them understand why it was so difficult. And then, Lord, to those who are trying to figure out how to put their life together, would you help them run to Christ and not to some man-made standard, but to cling to you, because you're the only one that can meet their needs. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Insecurity. Peer pressure, wanting to be liked, the fear of man, wanting the approval of others. Those are pretty strong words, strong emotions, aren't they? You probably remember when you felt them, you were a junior higher. You felt all that peer pressure that was around you. I remember thinking as a junior higher, I can't wait until I can become an adult and this peer pressure thing goes away. (laughs) My kids, we were talking about that last summer and they said, Dad, do parents... Adults struggle with peer pressure? I said, oh yeah, they do, son. It's just the objects change and they get a little more expensive. (laughs) The reality is we all know as adults that as we grow older, the issues of insecurity, fear of man, and peer pressure, they don't go away. It just changes, doesn't it? I remember when I felt this in a fresh and real way, a couple of years ago I was uh, invited to be a part of the advisory council of ABWE, one of the mission agencies in our country and one of the ones that we at College Park support missionaries through, and um, my, I had my first meeting coming up in April. I received a board packet of information, all of the notes, and then it had a little guidelines as to what the week would be like or what the three days would be like and what you should bring and you know, what you should wear and so I'm in my bedroom packing for this uh, board meeting, and I have no idea what I'm supposed to pack. So I got the suitcase out, and my wife's trying to help me, and she's like, well, what should you bring? I'm like, here's the list, and so I'm putting stuff in. I'm like, well, what if we do this, and we'll do this, and and, and so I'm packing and, and packing, and, and I'm like, well, I think, well, it's better at least be prepared, and before I know it, I got I got... Two pretty good sized suitcases for a a three day trip, right? And I'm thinking, well, at least I'll have something, maybe even something to share if someone forgets, right? So I got, I got my bags and I'm all ready. So I go to the airport, get my bags loaded up on that airplane, arrive in Harrisburg and come off the tarmac and I see this guy with an ABWE sign. I'm like, oh, there's my ride. So I come over there and I'm standing there introducing myself. Hi, I'm Mark and I'm new and, you know, never been to a board meeting before. You know, it's kind of standing there and inside I'm feeling like this, like, You know, I got this I got this this insecurity thing that's kind of strumming through my soul And then I see another guy who comes up He saw the abw thing and this guy apparently had been in a board meeting before and the first thing I noticed when he showed up Was the fact that he had a a suitcase and it was one and it was about this big, right? And I got two big suitcases, so i'm following him, you know grabbing mine (laughs) And he's got his little one and we get to the headquarters of the office and i'm lugging mine up the steps and uh, one of the guys who's been on the board a while looked at me and he said, yeah, so this is your first board meeting, huh? <laughs> and I felt like, yeah. You know, I mean, I had this insecurity thing it was just really, so I'm walking into the lobby and I got these two suitcases and I'm finding the secretary and I'm like, hey, where do I put these things? Because I like want to ditch them like right now. And she's like, all right, so put them over in the closet. So I'm there and I get my name tag and I'm standing around, don't know anybody. Looking around and try, everyone else knows everybody else. So I'm just kind of standing there looking at the paintings on the wall, you know. It's just a really uncomfortable feeling. Go into a meeting and um, and uh, then they tell at the announcement time that when we're all done with the meeting, to go back to the hotel, you have to find your own ride. And I'm looking around and go, find my own ride? So it means, it means you got to go to someone and ask if you can ride with them. So the meeting breaks, right? And all these guys who know each other, they, they start grouping around and they start walking out and I'm like, Hey guys, wait for me, you know. <laughs> It's terrible. It felt like back in junior... So then I get into the hotel room, finally, and I call my wife. She's like, hey, how's the board meeting going? I'm like, oh, honey, it's so not good. And she's like, why? And I said, because I feel like I'm back in junior high again. I feel insecure, and I just feel like I just want to go all over the place. I just, I hate that feeling. How many of you have, have felt that way as an adult? Let me see your hands. Okay, yeah, the rest of you are lying. You're lying. The reality is we felt like that at an office party. Uh, Maybe at some social gathering. You're just looking around. You feel like you're not in the in crowd. It's one thing when it happens at the office, when it happens like at a board meeting. Some of you know what it feels like when that happens at church. When the reality of being outside of the group isn't because of the social dynamics... It's because there's this clear sense, just in the room, that there's like A players spiritually, and then there's like B-minus spiritual players. The sense of in order to be part of the group, there's certain unwritten rules, certain codes, certain standards, certain guidelines, and you're either kind of in the group or you're not, and there's this powerful pull, of the desire to belong and the desire to have other people think well of you. And when the enemy attaches those two things to something spiritual, look out because it's not too long until spiritual drift can happen. Some of you grew up in a home or in a church. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you don't have the foggiest clue what I'm saying here, and be glad Because some of you grew up in a home or a church where it was just stifling the sense of there's this group that's in and these other folks that aren't. And the sense that, man, if you're not part of this particular group or act this certain way, you're just not really spiritual. Or before you know it, you look around and people are starting to look the same and talk the same and even dress the same. And before you know it, you kind of looked around and said, what is this, a cult? I mean, that's how you feel. you just In some cases, you don't even realize it till you're out. And the reason why this is so important is because the text that we're talking about this morning leads this way. Listen to it. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. That's that's a weird statement. What is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. Guard your freedom. He's writing to this group of believers who he's encouraging them to think right. Right. And we're in the middle of our section called Christ or Jesus centered thinking, where I'm trying to help us think about our thinking, to live vicariously, to live out the spiritual reality that we've been brought from death to life. And the question is, when you begin to feel insecure because you want to be part of the in crowd, even if they don't intentionally want or ask you to be legalistic, where do you run in that moment? And Paul says, guard your freedom. Or worse, when you're in an environment where you just have this sense that these people are looking down on you. There's this sense that you're not really part of the in-group. And just this sense that you get. And sometimes people intentionally want you to feel that way. What do you do? And here's what Paul says. You guard your freedom. This text is risky. Because it draws a thin line between the call to guard your freedom and something else that we see in Scripture about not taking our freedom and using it to give the flesh an opportunity. So there's an important balance here. And this morning, I want to help you to realize that Paul says we're not to be intimidated and we're not to be sidelined, we're to guard our freedom. Here's the first point. Number one, it's this. Paul says, don't be intimidated. Look at verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. Many of you will be familiar with the term Christian liberty or freedom in Christ, except most of us are familiar with that term or that idea because we've heard great teaching on Romans 14 or 15, which says this, that when it comes to gray matters or matters that aren't black and white or clear, there are preferences that believers can choose but we need to always see those preferences through a particular lens, and that is that if there is a weaker brother who our preference would cause them to stumble, we need to be willing to lovingly lay down our rights to those things out of love for our brother. And that's the idea of Christian liberty, and being willing to set aside our personal preferences out of love for another. And in no way do I want to diminish that truth at all from Romans 14 and 15. However, there is something that we must guard against. And it's this, there's a fine line between a loving concern for a weaker brother, who by the way, can't stay weak the rest of his life. A weaker brother, by definition, is a person who's growing in their maturity, who needs to come to an understanding of the truth, and for a time, you defer to that weaker brother so he can grow in his maturity and not be offended. You can't stay as a weaker brother for your entire life. However, what Paul is talking about here is not the concern for a weaker brother, but rather the way in which some people were allowing the legalistic preferences of others to unduly affect their lives. And there's a difference between a weak brother and someone who is a legalist. And I have heard a lot of things put under the banner of, I don't want to give an offense, I don't want to cause a stumbling block... And while some of that correctly applied to weaker brother, I've also heard things applied to people or things that then created an oppressive culture where you were so worried about being offensive to those who really have an unbiblical view of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And therefore, you end up sort of kowtowing or or walking on eggshells around these people who shouldn't have these positions in the first place, let alone should you somehow give in to them because of the power that they then hold over you. You, instead, Paul said, should guard your freedom. So now you see the tension. Because I've got to be, on the one hand, concerned for a weaker brother. On the other hand, I've got to guard my freedom, and I have to be sure that I do both at the same time. The great example of this is in Galatians 2, where the Apostle Paul confronts Peter. The storyline is this. Peter has come to the city of Antioch to observe how the Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. And while he's there, some... um, Jewish leaders from Jerusalem come to observe the work, and after the Sunday services, they have a love feast, a fellowship time, and Peter knows that these folks from Jerusalem would never eat with Gentiles. And so what he does, so he isn't offensive to them, he sets up a separate table. And these fellows come in, and they refuse to eat with the Gentiles, because they have all of these religious scruples, And Peter sets up a table for them, and so Peter sits there with him and all of those people, and then Barnabas joins him, and Paul sees this. And Paul goes after Peter in front of the entire group that's there with stunning clarity. Things that he says like this, I have been crucified with Christ, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And let me tell you, when Paul said that, I got a feeling he was a little direct. I don't think he said, Peter... I got to tell you, man, I'm, I'm like crucified with Christ and, you know, hey, man, the life that I live, I, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. and I, I'm just not going to set aside this grace. I don't think he said it like that. <laughs> I think reading the Apostle Paul, he was like, I have been crucified with Christ. He went after, listen, he went after the pillar of the church, the leader of the disciples. Paul was the new guy on the block. He was the freshman of the group. And yet Paul declared with clarity, I will guard my freedom in Christ. See, the reality is there's a need to guard freedom. And the question is, when do you do it and why is it so important? And what does it mean to really grapple with this issue of guarding our freedom? What's at stake here is that people who would either put their legalistic standards over top of you end up then creating a false system where you end up drifting from Christ. It's that important. And it also means that when you feel insecure and you're tempted to fall underneath the purview of those whose approval you want, that you have to battle that, how? How? Not by sacking them, but instead of running to Christ. Meaning that one of the strategies that some of you try to use is when you're worried about what people think of you, is you do this. Well, who cares what they think? They're silly anyways. They're, they're dumb. I don't care what they think. Blah, blah. And all you do by your yeah, 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 is, real, is, is reveal that you really do care what they think of you. And instead of doing that, Paul would say, go back to what it means to be secure in Christ. That you would say, look, I am secure in Jesus. This is who I am. That you live out what Christ, what Paul talked about, the crucifixion of Christ, but you live in that. So what's the hope for me in a hotel room in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, when I'm feeling secure, even with people who aren't legalistic? The hope is I take my security from who Jesus is and the fact that I live to please him. I don't live to please anybody else but it also means that when I sense either teaching or some this, this sort of downward look on me by others that I choose to run to Christ and take my confidence in Him. Listen, the reason this is so important is because the reality of legalism is that it has a pull on our hearts. And the first one is this, legalism is attractive because it offers a deeper spiritual life, a missing link. It sounds something like this, hey man, you know, you could really grow, you could really become better if you would just do, and what you then end up hearing is a list of do's and don'ts that you're supposed to adhere to. In the sense that you could move from a B minus to a maybe a B plus Christian It's not as brazen as, uh, you know, you don't really believe that Jesus is the Savior, right? It's it's not that brazen. No, it's more like this. You know, real Christians don't. You know, to really be spiritual, you've got to. And those little comments end up offering a missing link. And here's the second thing and why it's so powerful, is there is a a pressure to be part of the group out of either um, a desire for pride or also the fear of man, the sense where I want to be part of the group. I want to be part of the frozen chosen, right? I want to be part of the in crowd. Or that I then realize that if I go outside of the boundaries, then I'm going to be hmm, suffering at the hands of others. And so out of fear of them, I choose to not maybe say what I really think or really embrace my freedom. Some of you know exactly what this is like. Every time you go to Thanksgiving or Christmas, you can't even talk about the fact that you go to College Park Church. Because the people around you would just look at that with sort of their noses turned up with just this uncomfortable sense that they don 't approve, or maybe it 's um, the reality of people that you know in the community or, or, or maybe it's you grew up in a church like that, and you just felt the overwhelming stifling environment of man, you step out of the box and you are just you are just assaulted, and that 's why legalism has power because it, it offers a link, and there's power attached to pride and the fear of man. And that's why when Paul says, Don't let anyone pass judgment on you, those are strong words. In fact, the original says this Therefore, stop letting people pass judgment on you. The idea is it's continually happening, just make it stop. So, what does that mean? Does that mean they're to walk around the church, and when someone kind of looks at them funny, say, Hey, don't judge me? Is that what it means? Right? So I walk in the church, I got a red tie, and you're like, "I mean, hey, don't judge me, man. Is that what it is? You got like this chip on your shoulder, and you can slap Bible verses on it now? Is that what it is? Here's what I think it means. I think it means you need to stop being intimidated. It's the sense that, that you just feel, maybe sometimes because of others, like you're a second-class citizen. Maybe they don't even intend to do it, you just feel that way, so you've got to battle that and guard your freedom. Or maybe it's because those folks want you to feel that way, because they do think they're better than you. Regardless, you battle it with the same strategy. The rest of the verse indicates what they were being judged about. It was food and drink, regard to festival, a new moon or a Sabbath. Uh, these were some pretty common particular religious observance or religious regulations that were added Taking from the Old Testament into the New. However, the addition there of the word "drink" is interesting because there weren't like drink uh, prohibitions in the Old Testament. So probably what this was was some sort of um, Nazarene hybrid vow, like kind of like John the Baptist thing. Agreement not to drink certain things, eat certain things, and the result was that these spiritual confidence hucksters were presenting to the church that here were these regulations and they could really become spiritual if they abided by these and then they threw in holidays and festivals and sabbath sort of observances and then they attached obligatory spiritual significance to them and before you know it now you got all sort of a list of what you should do or what real spiritual people do i mean you could not do the list but you just won't be as good as everybody else and that's the tone and the problem is, is that the observance of these regulations now became a way to improve upon the person and work of Christ. It probably didn't sound like that at first. I mean, nobody would be that brazen to say, here's how you improve on Jesus. But it, it manifested itself, and boy, if you want to really be spiritual, here's what you need to do. And Paul says, stop letting these people intimidate you stop letting these people control you stop letting them make you feel insecure stop feeling like less than who you are and listen this isn't some sort of self-esteem pump you up sort of message this is look your only security is in christ it's not in what people think of you it's not in how they talk about you it's not what they say behind your back or what they write about you your security comes from who jesus is It doesn't come from your spouse from your kids It comes from the person and work of Christ. And Paul wants to make positional relationship with Christ practical. He wants to invade my hotel room in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, with the positional power of Jesus. He wants to invade the past of your life filled with hurt because of judgmentalism in the sense that I'm just not accepted and I don't belong. And he wants to take you and fill you and say to you, I cleaned you up, I made you a new creature, I set you free. Don't be shackled anymore. Even by people who sit in church. That's what's strange. Verse 17, Paul tells us why. These things are a shadow of things to come. Here's why. The substance, he says, belongs to Christ. That's what happens, is that when you buy into these things, you buy into a shadow. You're becoming afraid of a shadow. You're being led by something that has the form of maybe something else, but it's not the real substance, the real essence of really what spiritual life is all about. NIV says, the reality is found in Christ. New Living Translation says, these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. So Paul doesn't want us to be intimidated by people. Instead, he wants us to put our confidence in Christ, to know who we are, and to take our identity from Him, and our comfort from Him and to not allow our hearts to be squelched or hindered or somehow like, I'm not a first-class citizen when it comes to the kingdom of Christ. Jesus said, you're a new creature, old things have passed away, all things have become new, and that doesn't apply to anyone more than it does to you. He says, so focus on that. See, the reality is, when you live in an environment like this, it can become oppressive and almost feel like you're losing oxygen in the room. And to those of you who have grown up in that environment, you know what it's like to be on the other side. I've felt this personally. When I did ministry in Holland, there were some churches in our community who were pretty narrow in their understanding of who was kind of in the box of orthodoxy and who was out. And they defined out of of the box, really depending upon kind of the model of church that you used and in some cases, even the translation of the Bible that you used. A test of fellowship, in particular, was if you use King James, you were in. If you use anything else, you were out. When I came to Calvary, um, that was the translation that we used for quite some time. And over the years, I thought about changing that. And every time I did, I thought of these churches. And I knew what they would do the minute I changed it. I knew, because I'd seen it. And so therefore, I'm like, no, and it wasn't the right time. At the same time, I had this fear of what these churches would say, and I did a series called The Fear of Man, and I just really wrestled with that issue, and I came to the conclusion, you know what, at the end of the day, this is a fear of man issue for me, and if this is where God wants me to go, and this is what I think is right for our people, I need to do it, and let God take care of my reputation, and just let him take care of it. And so we made a change from King James to New King James. Not a big change at all. And then we changed uh, some things in our model of ministry to include small groups, and sure enough... Pretty soon we became known as Calvary used to be Baptist Church. (laughs) I was accused of being a liberal. And the reality is that's the real stuff. And I could laugh it off and say, ah, it's no big deal. But you know what? Those those things hurt. It's hard. And there's a pressure that's there to conform and to be part of the group. Because you don't want to be on the end of someone else's criticism. And yet Paul says, look, guard your freedom. Don't give in to this. Don't be rude. Don't flaunt your freedom. But you need to be guarded in your position in Christ. Go to your birthday party with your relatives. And even though you know they look down on you, you run to Christ. Live in the community. And even though you know you're probably going to be talked about by other people behind your back, live in your position in Christ, because remember, at the end of the day, hear me, we give an account to one person, sovereign, king, lord of all who knows our hearts, and at the end of the day, he will make it right, and we lay it at his feet and say, Jesus, I live for the audience of you. So Paul says, don't be intimidated. The second thing he says is don't be sidelined. Verse 18 says this, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. To be sidelined means that you would take the wrong path. You'd be running the marathon and the Olympics, and instead of following the blue line, you go off and follow the yellow and go down the wrong street, and you end up losing. So this is serious. If the other was, don't be intimidated, this is a little more serious. This means that you're put on the bench. That either A, you say, hey, I'm done, I need to sit down, I'm not as good as these guys who are playing, and so you bench yourself, or you compete in the wrong way with the wrong rules, and the Savior himself benches you. It would be to stand before Christ, and he would say to me, this horrible thing, Mark, you fought all the wrong things. Battles. It's to live in such a way that you're sidelined either by your own choice because you think you're not worthy or you're not good enough or you would sideline yourself because you fought the wrong battles, climbed the wrong mountains, and died on the wrong hills. See, maturity is not just what you know, it's knowing what's important. And the danger is that first... This group of people could create a culture in which certain folks would view themselves as not usable because they didn't meet the standard and therefore, thereby disqualifying themselves. So there's this, this group of people in the church that view themselves as A players, and you look at yourself as like a C minus or maybe a C plus, and so you just never engage. You just kind of view yourself as an outsider and you never. Jump in. And Paul says, don't do that to yourself. And sometimes the people in church don't even mean to do that. We do that to ourselves. And other times people intend to make you feel less. And Paul says, regardless, don't be sidelined. The other way it happens is people could, you could lose your reward as you waste your life on worthless discussions, worthless battles, and pointless, pointless pursuits. And the word sideline here fits because you take yourself out of the game and Christ says, in effect, to you, look, you're competing and you've broken all the rules. You're fighting the wrong battles. How does this happen in the Colossian church? Well, one, it happened through false humility. That's the word asceticism. Meaning that these these spiritual um, trust hucksters... They they were putting their confidence, they wanted people to put their confidence in them, and they appeared to be very humble, because you don't usually put your trust in people you know are proud, but what happened is their asceticism was a false humility. or There was an over-spiritualization, they were worshiping angels, and so suddenly now it's this this mystical thing, and they're they're suddenly now, um, somehow, they've got a corner in the market of what God is saying, they can pick up the red phone, so to speak, they really know what truth is. And then finally, they have a special claim to spiritual insight. They have have visions, they can see things that no one else can see. And the reality is they were claiming that they knew stuff that no one else knew. It may have sounded something like this. Look, you can get ahead spiritually. If you want more clarity and insight, here's the deal, you have to work at it. You know, most people in my church don't know this stuff, and frankly, I can't get the pastor to teach this. I'm trying, but I'm telling you, man, there's a new level of freedom here. This has worked wonderfully for me. Here's what I did. Read my pamphlet, read my book, just take my seminar and find Mark's five ways to spiritual success. And what's surprising about Mark's five ways to spiritual success is the name Jesus is noticeably absent. Verse 18 peels back what's really there. It says, be Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. That's the core right there. That's the problem. You strip away, and what you'll find in the inside is not Jesus. You'll find a big eye idol. Because we like to use... The citation of others, people following us, people looking like us, and it feeds something inside of our souls. So when I say the word legalist, please don't think of an image of someone else's face. I trust that what you're thinking of is a mirror. And asking yourself this question, Lord, to what extent is this propensity to create a self-made religion deeply laden within my own heart? What Paul is saying here is don't... Forget that at the heart of what is inside your soul is this penchant to be worshipped. And legalism is just another means for it to happen. And what pride is, is it distorts what we hear, it distorts what we see. You can even use good stuff and use it for your advantage. You can use the church, meant to be the pillar and ground of truth for God, and you can use it to fill your own soul. And that's what pride does, it distorts everything, and it makes you hear things or see things that you're convinced are true, but aren't. When I was in Holland, we had a, uh, a civil service Sunday, and we'd invite our political leaders into the church service, and just had a great time, and I was at a fellowship with one of our newly elected representatives, and I was congratulating him on his election, it was a pretty tough one, and just was telling him congratulations on his new position, and I had my picture taken with him and just part of the slides for the event. And I said, hey, kind of jokingly, hey, when, when you make it big, I'll, I'll have my picture with you. And he laughed and he said, oh, Mark, you know what? you got to understand something, man. Politics is one of the most humbling things in all the world. In fact, what happens is too often we think too much of ourselves and then God chooses to humble us. And then he told me a story. He said, you know, a couple of months ago, I uh, wrote a piece of legislation as a freshman congressman that I was pretty uh, pretty proud of. And uh, it was some pretty cutting-edge stuff, apparently, and was pretty hard to get through, but he got the job done, his name was on it, and, and it was passed through both the, the State House and the Senate. The governor signed it, and he was really proud of his accomplishment. Here, freshman legislature writes his, one of his first pieces of legislation, and it gets passed, and he was pretty pumped about it. Well, his kids uh, ran into his office one afternoon um, at home and said, Dad, Dad, Newsweek's on the phone for you. And he was all excited. He was like, they must have heard about my legislation. And so he, he said, really? I said, "Yeah, they're, they're, they're waiting for you. And so he grabbed the phone and, and set himself, himself down at the desk and opened up his file and had his talking points and, and, uh, kind of quieted his heart and, uh, just took a breath and picked up the phone and said, hello, this is Rep. representative so and so. I, uh, I suppose you've heard about my legislation and, uh, would like to have a quote or something about it. There's a long pause at the other end and the lady said, no, I just wanted to know if you wanted to renew your subscription. Whoa, <laughs> <Ooh>, boom, <right? laughs> See, what happens, that's what pride does, folks. It, it, it causes us to take things that we might normally think of in one category, and pride causes us to create multiple new categories about us. And this is what happens. Paul says that happens with spiritual stuff, and when it happens, look out. So the warning isn't just to guard your own freedom so that other people won't put you under it. It's to guard your own freedom so you won't, hear me, so you won't do it to others. So you won't create this, this little group that you want looking like you. And it happens in subtle forms. You're, you're talking to your small group. Hey, what's God doing in your life these days? And they go around one by one talking about how God's working in their life. And, and they talk about all this stuff. And guess whose name never comes up? Yours. And you're working all week long to prepare good small group lessons. I mean, you, you're calling and you're pouring your life into them, but yeah, no one mentions your name, and for a split second you think, "Oh, those ungrateful small group folks, they don't even know how much, they don't even talk to God about me, right? Or it's when your kids, uh, you're around a, a table, and you, what are you thankful for, thankful for this, and our home, and our dog, and, and, and our Sunday school teacher, and you're like going, blinker, 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 what about dad, right? <laughs> That's what happens, and the pride of our heart says, I, I want you to think of me, and, and that penchant, that lust, to be known as someone important, have people say your words, to cite you, to quote so-and-so, that, you hear me, that is a real trap, we've got to be really careful, lest we end up becoming the very thing Paul says we're to be guarded against. Where should instead we be pointed? Paul says to Christ, look at verse 19, the characteristic is that they're not holding fast to the head, meaning Christ from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Look, here's why this is so much a problem, because it cuts off people's connection from Christ. Notice that the verse tells us why it's so important to be connected to Christ, because he's the one that nourishes the body. He's the one that provides life, folks, not us. Your words, they fall. They're they're, they're worthless unless Jesus empowers them. It means that He's the one that holds it together, that that real unity is expressed not with people who look alike and say the same thing and talk alike. The beauty of the church is its broad diversity in both gifts and ethnicity and backgrounds and, and perspectives, and yet the defining center of it all is Jesus. He holds it together. And that someone would look at the church and go, I don't know how this thing all held together, but the answer is Christ. Christ was the one. He's the one that, like joints and ligaments, He's the one that pulls it all together. It also means that you're not responsible to help people get along. It's not your responsibility to hold it all together. You can't do that. Jesus is the one. And some folks have developed legalistic means to try and make things change in a church or in a small group. Let's do this and this and this. And our, our... our reaction is, if we've got a problem, let's develop more rules, and more policies. And usually what policies means, we just don't want to think about what to do when it happens again. We can hide behind it. And the reality is, the only thing that can hold it together is the person and work of Christ. And the last thing is that God gives the growth. God is the one who creates this this spiritual vitality that would not happen were it not for Him and that means if someone asks you, hey, how did you grow? How did you become mature? If you can give them four ways or your four-step plan, the question would be, then what do you need Jesus for? The fact of the matter is, if you can't explain it, it may be very well that God did it. And if you can't explain it, it may be that he didn't do it. So we have to be careful that we not become sidelined personally or that we unintentionally create a situation where we cause others to be sidelined. So how do you guard your freedom? Here's three things. First, I have to know my position in Jesus. I said this before, I'm just going to say it again. You have to know what it means to be buried with Christ, to be risen with Christ, to be crucified with Christ. We have to come back to the Gospel. I am trying to make the point over and over and over that the Gospel is central to guarding your freedom. It is central to living, it's central to right thinking, that Jesus and the cross is not just something about being saved and having the forgiveness of your sins. That's the starting point, but the rest of your life is Gospel-influenced and Gospel-focused. You keep coming back to Christ, and celebrating that position so that in the the hotel room in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I'm coming back to the cross and reminding myself what I'm like. And when someone says something in the community that's hard or negative because of my freedom in Christ, I come back to, who am I in Jesus? That's the only secure position. And there's many of us who live like Jesus isn't enough when He is. The second thing is that I have to connect my heart to my position or i have to live in christ in life meaning that i have to continually take my security my hope my righteousness my safety my power my sanctification all of it comes from him and i have to work out my life knowing who i am in christ and connecting that into a hundred million different opportunities in my world i have to connect that if i'm a Person, if you're here today and you have committed grievous sins, and you have sinned horribly, and you're in the process of recovering, or if right now you've you've already just blown it, and you're just like I don't I don't even know where to start. The answer is you go back to the cross. You start there, and you begin throwing yourself at the mercy of Jesus that you need to stop trying to fix up your own life. If you could have fixed it, you would have fixed it a long time ago. You can't fix it. Only Jesus can. And it's your position in Him that is the starting point for all real change. There are no recipes. There are no formulas. There's no one, two, three plan. It is about Christ by the Word, through the Spirit. That's how the change takes place. It's a miraculous, supernatural work. And we have to connect our life to that reality. And finally... I have to watch out for do-it-myself religion. It is far too easy to have do-it-my-way parenting, do-it-my-way marriage, do-it-my-way counseling, do-it-my-way music, do-it-my-way preaching, and do-it-my-way church, such that I develop a mentality that if you ain't doing it my way, you ain't doing God's work at all. And that, dear friends, is a dangerous perspective to have i got to be sure that the gospel is always central. And watch out when I hear teaching that doesn't seem to point me to Christ as the answer, but I also have to watch out for it in my own heart. See, most false teachers, they didn't know they were false teachers. They thought they were right. That's why they're so passionate. Most people aren't passionate when they think they're wrong. They're passionate because they think they're right. And these false teachers thought they were doing God a really good service. Paul had to be confronted by the person of Jesus personally, and he was shocked that he wasn't doing what God wanted him to do. And the danger is that we can create a subtle drift of do-it-myself religion. You see, you, you might know that being liberal would be disastrous, but so is being a legalist. Both accomplish the same unfortunate end, they just accomplish it in a different way. Liberalism denies the reality of Christ's atonement. Legalism just renders it ineffective. Liberalism says we don't believe in Jesus. Legalism says, well, we don't need Jesus. Same end, just different route. And we've got to guard our hearts and resist any efforts to sideline us or to sideline others and be very fearful that we don't do that to someone else. Beloved, it is very easy to do. I remember when this was just driven home to me as it relates to being a dad. Sometimes as parents, you'll understand this, that you give rules to your kids and you intend for those rules to kind of live, but not to live in like infamy. That as they grow, they're going to come to understand different categories. When our kids were five years old, we had a rule at our house. There was a particular television program on PBS that we didn't want them to watch. It's Dragon Tales. How many of you know what that show is? Okay, great. Just relax. Nothing wrong with Dragon Tales. Okay, uh, but when my kids were five years old, there was this magic thing in there and things of that sort, and I just didn't want them watching it. I didn't didn't like it, and so I'd say, "Hey, kids, Dragon Tales. You can't watch that." And they want to know why. I said, "Well," and I oversimplified it. I said, "It's it's just a bad show." Okay, so like Dragon Tales would come on, and they'd be like, "Hey, hey, turn it off! It's Dragon Tales!" You know, like like you know, like it was like a gonna come out of the screen at them, you know, and and then. You know, one of them slipping through a channel. Don't, 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 ah! You know, like, something's gonna happen. I created this fear within their hearts of this, this show called Dragon Tales on PBS of all things, right? I didn't really realize this was going on until one Sunday we're sitting there at Sunday afternoon uh, lunch, and uh, my boys, who were really young, about five or six years old, said, Dad, you are not gonna believe what happened in Sunday school today. And they're all like talking like they're shaking their heads. And I'm thinking, oh, I got some new controversy I'm going to hear about at the church. And, you know, so we're kind of debriefing from Sunday morning. And I said, yeah, what, what happened? So you're just not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. And I said, oh, well, what is it? And my interest has really peaked. And they said, did you know that so and so lets their kids watch Dragon Tales? <laughs> And my wife and I wanted to go, ooh, you know? But, of course, we're maintaining our composure and kind of going, you know, like this. And, and it was then that I realized that I hadn't created another category for my kids. Because truth be told, kids are have a penchant for legalism, don't they? Immaturity breeds a penchant for legalism. They like the box defined. And if I had let them, they would have created their own church called the First Church of Anti-Dragon Tales, Right? <laughs> So now the demarcation of line. do you believe in the Bible? Yes, do you believe in Jesus too? Yeah, you can watch Dragon Tales. Yes. Oh, no. So we can't hang out with you. So that's what happens. And the reality is the power to conform and the offering of more or this box that I had defined for them actually could become a subtle legalistic standard in their mind and heart. And I needed to create a new little category for them called preference. And that people can still go to heaven who watch Dragon Tales. And you can have people even on the same church staff who may have different views on these particular things. doesn't mean they love Jesus any less. I need to help them understand that. See, the reality is, College Park, the promise of more and the power to conform, those are real powers. Those are real issues in our hearts. And I want to encourage you today to be very careful that you don't ever create an environment where people are sucked into following you rather than following Jesus. And then for the others of you who know exactly what I mean about family or churches where you just feel like it's oppressive, had a brother today after the first service say, thank you, I'm going to lunch with my family, and what you just talked about is exactly the world that I live. He's going to go sit down at lunch today, and the anchor of his soul will be in Christ. He will guard his freedom. At the end of the day, he lives for the audience of one. His name is Jesus. He set me free, and I got to guard my freedom in him. So, Lord, help us to balance out this truth with the call to lay down our rights, if needed, over areas of preference, out of love for a weaker brother or sister so he or she could grow, and this other bucket where people try intentionally or we feel it unintentionally to bring us into a group, make us conform. And we need wisdom here because we could apply this in dangerous ways. And we just today want you to remind us of the significance of our position in you. And I pray that some folks who feel like B minus C plus citizens of this church would today feel the beautiful equaling power of their position in Christ. I pray that no more would they be sidelined, no more would they be intimidated, and they would be free to run, free to serve you. Not looking back, disrespecting those in the past who may have tried to hold them back, but instead focused on you, looking to you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.